All right, let's take our Bibles and open to uh, Matthew chapter 27. If you have a, a fourth or fifth grader, uh, there has uh, the disciple kids as well. They're probably already up there or making their way up maybe, but uh, you're more than welcome to head on up as well. A neat little curriculum about how to study your Bibles and uh, done around a mystery theme. Uh, so we would invite uh, you to go up as well. I'm kind of boring compared to all of that, kids. So, uh, so if you'd like to do that, feel free. Uh, we're motoring right along in Matthew, and we're here at uh, chapter 27. And we are, uh, neatly enough, considering the Passion Week as we uh, prepare for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And certainly couldn't happen at a better time in relationship to our own calendar. Uh, so we're very thankful for that. Uh, tonight we'll be considering uh, verses 27 all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, so some guy assigned these large portions. And I'm afraid I was that guy. Uh, so we're going to sort of take a survey approach to this passage of Scripture. There's obviously a lot here. Uh, this is the, uh, a few of the events leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the crucifixion itself, and then the burial. And uh, we're going to look at a proposition tonight that we find actually in verse number uh, 37. And it is the, the, the list of the charge that headed the cross where Jesus was hung. And our proposition is this. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. In verse 37, the charge put above Jesus' head unwittingly testifies the point that Matthew has intended all along in his gospel. Hopefully you've gotten that idea that Matthew writes to, the Jewish, uh, to a Jewish audience with the goal of declaring the truth that Jesus is the King. He is the Messiah. He is all that the Old Testament prophets prophesied concerning this messianic individual, this, this man, this Jesus of Nazareth who walked the dusty streets of, of Galilee. He is the God-man. He is Messiah. He is the anointed one of God. And this is what Matthew is seeking to do. And he is seeking to prove this point. The epitaph or, or the sign above Jesus there uh, unwittingly makes the point that Matthew has intended. Jesus is the king. He is the anointed son of God. What seems in our passage to be the rock bottom of King Jesus' earthly ministry is in fact the pinnacle for Matthew's recounting of Jesus' life. This passage is riddled with irony. The mocking tones do not change the truth that they proclaim. From the soldier's mocking cry, Hail, King of the Jews, to the written charge above him, as we've already mentioned, to the tongue-in-cheek identification in verse 42 that Jesus is the King of Israel, to the sardonic accusation in verses 40 and 43 that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, all these point to the fact that Jesus had clearly communicated who he was. 
In fact, we could argue that no other passage in Matthew's gospel makes this so clear that Jesus had made his point. The problem, of course, is that mankind hates this point about Jesus. Jesus was not crucified for healing the sick or feeding the hungry. Hatred for his authority and his titles king and God was the occasion for his rejection and violent death. It is in his crucifixion that Jesus most profoundly and demonstrably witnesses to the fact that he is the king, the son of the living God. And we, we want to see this truth through three simple points tonight. Um, and we want to see the irony. We want to see that Matthew simply is clearly stating through the narrative, through the dialogue, that the soldiers get this, the passers-by get this, all of the Jewish elite get this, even the thieves that were crucified on Jesus' either side got this truth that Jesus is or claimed to be in their idea the Son of God, the Messiah, the King. It is so very, very clear. The first thing we want to see tonight is that Matthew recounts through the words of Jesus' enemies uh, uh, as they mocked him for his identity. And it's through their mockery that Matthew points out Jesus accomplished his purpose. Jesus accomplished his purpose. We read in Matthew chapter, or uh, here in chapter 27, beginning with verse 28, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to, be crucified, to crucify him. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at that time, two robbers were crucified him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way... The chief priests also among the scribes and elders were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is a king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
the robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Now, we know that one of those robbers eventually confesses Jesus Christ as being true to who he says he himself is. We're going to witness that fact that one of the Roman centurions do the same. But at this point in the narrative, everybody is mocking Jesus. And they're mocking him not because he healed sick people. They're mocking him not because he fed hungry people. They're mocking him because of his authority. And mankind has always hated his authority. Uh, we see back there in, in verse 27, this is a cohort of Roman soldiers. A cohort is approximately 480 men. This is a lot of men uh, uh, who are witnessing to the fact that Jesus had made his point very clear about his identity. As we read further here, the ignominy and brutality is unthinkable when mankind is, uh, is, is, his authority is challenged. And this is mankind in the sickness of his sinful nature, striking out against that authority and, 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 and doing what mankind so often does, asserting his own authority by means of force. Uh, and it's ugly. It's very, very ugly. The brutality is, like I said, unthinkable. This is man's unbounded sin nature in response to Jesus' authority as king. They stripped him naked. They, in a mocking fashion, put a purple robe on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. They mocked him further by putting a staff in his right hand. And note how they are not giving him elements that would emphasize his meek and mild love and healing of people and caring for people. No, they, they single out his, his, his claim to be king. And they mock it wickedly and unceasingly. They kneel before him and they cry out, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him. They took his own staff and struck him on the head, a head that bore the crown of thorns. The NIV does a wonderful job picking up the, 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 the verbs here. And if you have an NIV on your lap, you read there that they did this again and again and again and again. And that's right. That's a good translation for what these verbs are. It was horrific. It was absolutely horrific. Mankind has one particular thing about Jesus Christ that they cannot stomach, and that is his authority. Mankind, in Romans 1, we are taught his primary problem is not that he has a want of data. As Pastor was mentioning this morning, his primary problem is that he hates the authority of God. He is hostile as Romans chapter 1 points out. You and I, our problem before we came to Christ was that we were hostile to the authority of God. That anyone would have the chutzpah to come into our life and call us sinners. How dare he? How dare he? We're hostile. And as pastor reminded us this morning, we still have that old nature inside of us. 
We still have that, 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 that visceral, hostile response to the authority of God and his word. But thankfully, we have a new nature in Christ. We have a composite set of attributes that are just as much a part of us as our old sin nature that longs for the authority of God. We now have the ability not to sin as we nurture ourselves on the truth of the word of God. But here at the crucifixion, we see this hostility in HD. And it's a hostility that you and I participate in, in fact. Because we too, like the soldiers, hate the authority of the king. We hate his authority. They took Jesus... And the Bible tells us here in this passage that they crucified him. They crucified him. And in one word, Matthew quickly runs over uh, the agony and the reality of what crucifixion is all about. We need to remember that Jesus had already been scourged. This was in the passage that was handled last week. Jesus had already been uh, 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 not beaten uh, as the Jews would normally have done. This was a Roman scourging. This was a horrific a practice that often left men disemboweled and, and literally bleeding to death. Jesus had somewhat recovered from that. He had suffered at the hands of the guards, a, a, a whole cohort of them, 480 of them taking their turn. They dress him back and they take him out. And they crucify him. You know, most experts, as they have studied the idea of crucifixion and what actually killed the man, uh, have really come to believe that what actually killed the man was not necessarily the, the crucifixion proper itself, but what is, it was all the accumulating factors that came into play as the individual hung there exposed, exposed. Uh, probably the final cause of death was most likely suffocation as a person literally smothered himself in an inability to no longer gasp for air. <clears throat> and along the way, he would, be, he would have these psychological, uh, uh, there, there's a term for these, uh, panics. He tried to gasp for air. And it was literally a sickening thing to watch. There were basic two kinds of, of crucifixion. The one that was more merciful was the one where a man's hand was tied above his head. And uh, um, uh, that individual probably very quickly came to his death uh, due to the reasons that are necessary to take breaths. Uh, a more painful and lingering way were those whose hands were stretched out in, in a horizontal fashion. And as the arms slowly were brought out of socket in the shoulder area over time, and as the chest then would collapse upon itself, and the inability to even do anything about it, as little sips of air were taken, the blood probably grew more acidic and eventually attacked the cells, the body cells, and the individual died in a horrific way. Our Jesus was crucified as an expression of man's hatred 
for his authority as the king, as the son of the living God. But not only did the Romans, the Romans uh, crucify and mock our Lord, but our, uh, the word of God continues to tell us that the passers-by, the religious leaders, and those who were crucified with Jesus equally mocked him. Verse 38, we see that and following as we read. And at that same time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Later on in verse 44, we find out that those robbers uh, were insulting him with the same kinds of words. And these words were, were being hurled at Jesus by those who were passing by. And they mocked him for his divine authority over the temple, sort of a misunderstanding of what Jesus said about the temple. So he was really referring to his own body, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. But that was taken against him as an accusation against the physical temple in Jerusalem that Jesus was going to destroy it. It was never meant in that fashion. But again, ironically enough, Jesus later on demonstrates his authority over the temple precinct when he threw the money changers out. He said, this is my house. So in effect, they hated him in the same way, or for the same reason, should we say. They hated his authority for claiming that he had any right over the house of God. He, in fact, is claiming to be God. Verse 39 and 40, we read that. Verses 41 and 42, uh, they mocked his divine authority to save others. This is a joke. He cannot even save himself, this king of Israel. There it is again, king of Israel. That word king is used multiple times in this passage. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. And then he uh, quotes from uh, Psalm, uh, I believe it's 22. We'll pick up that Psalm where Jesus is going to emphatically demonstrate that, that he is the fulfillment of that Messianic Psalm. But here they use that Messianic Psalm against him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And they knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said that. They knew what Jesus meant is, I am equal with God, that I am one of the Trinity, that there is one essence, three persons. I am one of those persons, and I share all of the divine attributes, all of them. Philippians chapter 2 teaches that Jesus is going to empty himself. We need to understand that properly. We'll comment on that here in just a second. But they mocked his divine authority to save others, and they mocked his divine authority in the reality that he was equal to the Father. He trusts in God, and this is a unique sense. If God truly delights in him as the Son of God, the unique Son of God, the one who bears his essence, this is the one that the Father delights in, more so than anyone else. He delights in he who is exactly like him. See, God can only love that which replicates himself. That's why you're created in his image. So he can love you. He certainly doesn't, he, he loves his son in an infinitely different kind of a way because his son replicates him. 
my friends, he doesn't love the tree or the animal like he loves you because you replicate him. And obviously Jesus replicates him infinitely and eternally because he himself is God. He is the beloved of God. He is the delight of God. And all who find themselves in Jesus Christ are his delight as well in a very, very special way. So what is the king's response? In verse 34, we have this incident uh, that is they're taking him. Remember, he's scourged. They're, they're nailing him to the cross. Um, when they had come to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, it probably was an outcrop of rock outside the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And the gall here is it's a bitter wine. And the gall is, is a, it's in, the, in the several different translations, it's, it's a poison in the sense that it has a deadening effect and enables uh, the individual to go with much less pain. And Jesus refuses it. Jesus refuses it. And here we have, in fact, folks, a, a clear understanding of what Philippians chapter 2 is talking about when Jesus makes himself of no reputation. Uh, and as much as I love the song that my son, son's son sang this morning, Jesus did not empty himself of all but love. Jesus is fully God. So what in fact does Jesus do? Well, here we have it. It is here again that we see this Emptying, and how we're to understand Philippians chapter 2, this emptying in action. Jesus' unwillingness to seize upon the free and full independent use of his divine attributes. He's unwilling to do that. These attributes were freely called upon when it came to feeding, miraculously creating fish and bread out of thin air. He freely calls upon it then. Them then, he freely calls upon those divine attributes when it comes to the point of healing people who are sick and blind. Freely calling upon those divine attributes. But in this instance, those attributes remain silent because he will not call upon them in this case. He will not, he will not call upon these attributes when it comes to self-preservation at the appointed hour. Jesus' divine attributes were left silent by the king. Even the normal human comforts were rejected. By King Jesus, as he bore God's wrath for your sin and for mine. Folks, this is, this is, nobody dreams this up. This is amazing love. How can it be? Only the king could do this. Only the king could bear the full weight of God's wrath for your sin and mine and leave his divine attributes silent and refuse even the normal comforts 
given to those in their humanity. Jesus refused that. Unwilling. Mockery. Mockery. And yet in the midst of mockery, Matthew's point is made. Jesus is the king. He's the son of God. Only a king can accomplish his purpose in the face of the rebellion of all around him. It takes a king, and a king of a kind of standing unlike any other who has ever ruled and reigned. This is a supernatural king. This is the king, by the way, who's going to come back, no longer the lowly man of Galilee, high and lifted up. This king will come to rule and reign. No longer the meek and mild tempered Jesus. His will will be done and accomplished. Secondly, we see here that Jesus' authority is not only demonstrated through the mockery, but Jesus' authority is vindicated in the very event of his death. There's vindication. There's a clear demonstration that what Jesus said about himself is absolutely, unequivocally true. In this amazing report, in verse 45 through 56, there's a supernatural darkness over all the land. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. those who were in Matthew's audience would clearly begin to identify this with a critical point in time that will come in Israel's future. It was a point in time that was prophesied in the Old Testament by the major and minor prophets alike called the Day of the Lord. And it had a very foreboding aspect and it had a very... Uh, triumphant aspect. And they knew that it would be laced in its foreboding with darkness that would fall upon the face of the whole earth. We, we're familiar with those in the, in the judgments that rolled out during the tribulation. His audience would have understood it as the day of the Lord. So they knew this was the Lord. The Lord. We Gentiles can't appreciate that much. But for Matthew's audience, this was incredibly significant. This was pointing to uh, what the God of heaven would do through the Messiah in the coming days, in the days of what we call the tribulation. Darkness would fall upon the face of the whole earth in an unnatural way. And so too here. And astronomers had worked it out. This is no lunar, or what would that be, solar eclipse. This is not what this is. This is supernatural. This is amazing. We see in verse 46 that he's forsaken by the Father. We know that Jesus uttered seven statements from the cross, but Matthew includes only this one. And it is here that Matthew reports the fulfillment of that messianic psalm, Psalm chapter 22, the, the very psalm that the mockers used against Jesus Earlier, 
Jesus now turns and proclaims, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus is vindicated both in the fact that he fulfills the messianic reality of Psalm 22, but he's vindicated by the fact that he accomplishes his purpose. This point in time that had been predestined before the foundation of the world, when the fellowship between the Father and the Son would be interrupted as the Son bears the sin of the world. It is accomplished. And it's accomplished at a point in time where the world thinks they have Jesus by the throat. But what in fact is true is Jesus has our sin by the throat. The Father turns his back. And Jesus, in a triumphant, I would argue, yet painful and sorrowful way, that's the irony of this whole chapter, proclaims, my accomplish is, is fulfilled. The Father has turned his back on me. I now am alone. For the first time in all of eternity past, will never to be re repeated again in eternity future. For the sins of the world. I'm alone. This is vindication. This is irony. This is the king doing what only a supernatural king can do when all else is against him. He's faithfully accomplishing his purpose. What a Jesus we have. What a savior we own. What a hero. What a wonderful king. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. In verse 48, not only did he reject normal human comforts, in verse 48 we see that he elongates now. Immediately one of them ran, when they heard this, this uh, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, they thought he was calling for Elijah, and they kind of wanted to keep him alive a little longer, because what did they want to see? Would Elijah show up? So some commentators believe this is the soldiers or some of the Jews. They, this is a great spectacle. And so now they simply bring Jesus a sponge with, with uh, the, the, the common ordinary drink of the day. And it was not laced with uh, a, 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 a deadening drug. And so Jesus imbibes it so that he can longer endure, longer hang on the cross, Longer demonstrate his love for you and for me. Again, the crowds think they're waiting to see this spectacle. In verse number 50, Jesus willingly gives up his spirit. Now, this is a very interesting verse number 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That phrase, yielded up his spirit, we see that um, throughout the Bible as sort of a euphemism for death. Uh, usually, that phrase that we use here is translating um, a single Greek or Hebrew word. And, and it simply means he died. But here, this is not a single Greek word. This is a Greek phrase. And Matthew is taking pains to help us understand here that there is something uniquely different about Jesus' death. If you have a New Schofield reference Bible on your lap, you have a wonderful note about this on page 1043, if you want to look at it. But there, uh, the, 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 the editors say this, um, 
This is translate a, a, a phrase of two words, meaning to give over the spirit or to deliver up the spirit. The death of Jesus was different from that of any other man. No one could take his life from him except as he was willing to permit it. This two-word phrase in Hebrew, or in Greek, I'm sorry, is used in this passage, and it's also used in John's recount. John chapter 10, verse 18, and it's used nowhere else in all Scripture. And it's only used in reference to Jesus allowing his spirit now to depart. He's in complete command and complete control. Ironically, enough. Because all those around him, again, thought they had him by the neck. And yet Jesus had your vindication by the neck. And he was accomplishing it with surgeon-like precision. The curtain is torn from top to bottom. And it is here, you notice we have a unique word in verse 51. First time we see this word in this whole passage. Matthew tells us to stop and take a long, lingering look. Behold, he says, something amazing happens as soon as Jesus expires. Gives up his spirit. There's no lingering in heaven thinking about whether Jesus' sacrifice is really good enough. You know, they, God didn't up, wasn't up in heaven had, drumming his fingers, thinking about, well, will I accept this or will I really not? Immediately, the curtain is torn. God immediately accepts the sacrifice of the king. And now access is granted for all of mankind directly into the very presence of God. Jesus fulfills and renders obsolete all of the old covenant ways of access to the king, to Jesus, who is himself God. This is amazing. He's vindicated. He's vindicated. The earth shakes. Rocks are split. Tombs are broken open. Holy people who have died are raised to life. Not just anybody, but holy people. People whose righteousness was defined as God necessitated. Holy people. They're raised to life. And in verse 54, we come full circle. We have the witness of the centurion. The, the one who's keeping guard over Jesus. And when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, what? Truly, this was the Son of God. Truly. All that he said about himself is, in fact, the truth. And we mocked him for it. But he was right all along. He was right all along. And then our third point, we see in sort of a matter of foreshadowing. Because there is an event, you know, the Easter is a coming. You know, it's the old, uh, I think that's a Negro spiritual or a song. Easter is a coming. There will be not just a resurrection, my friend. Never just call it a simple mere resurrection. This is a bodily resurrection 
from the dead. That is what is critical. Unless Matthew, uh, unless, unless Matthew sort of in a foreshadowing way deals with all of the, uh, all of the naysayers who are going to circle the wagons of excuses or explanations when it comes to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We'll very quickly go through them. First of all, uh, uh, we have this rich man, uh, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who himself had also become a disciple, verse 57. Uh, He's a rich man. He's a well-known man. He does so. He's a little still new in his discipleship of Jesus Christ. And so he's not demonstrative, but, but he is well known. Pilate orders the body to be given to him. Joseph wraps it in clean cloth. There's very clear uh, indication of how the body was prepared. And, it, and then he laid it in, in his own new tomb. This isn't some tomb that was hidden on the backside of the cemetery where nobody ever goes. This, my friends, was a brand new tomb right out in front owned by a rich man. There was no mistaking where this tomb was or who this tomb belonged to. I mean, if you go down to the, the, you know where Garfield's buried, right? I mean, you go to that, oh, what's the cemetery called in Cleveland? Where is it? Lakeview. Lakeview. I mean, it's, the, it's huge. You can't miss it. This was that kind of a tomb. You're not going to miss this. And then, oh, by the way, oh, by the way, um, he's laid out, and, and, uh, and, and there is a, uh, a rock that is specifically cut out, that is rolled against the entrance of the tomb. This is equally a new rock. It's not going to look like all the old rocks. So, so the, the, the outward appearance of the tomb is clear. And then, oh, by the way, guess who is sitting there sort of opposite the grave watching all of this? Yeah, Mary Magdalene. And Mary, and who are the ladies who are going to come to the tomb? Folks, they didn't mistaken where the location of the tomb was. Matthew is saying here, this is about the the best marked tomb ever. (laughs) Ever. Ever. So the location is clear. And then we see here that the chief priests... Help us in the identification of the tomb, unwittingly, again. Uh, it's interesting how they mocked Jesus. They, they mocked him throughout his life. They mocked him in his death. They, they said his kingship and his authority as, and title as God is, is a farce. And yet, who's shaking in their boots? Well, it's the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. Pilate allows them to set a guard there. He allows a seal to be put on the tomb. Make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they did just that. And this speaks not necessarily to the identification of the tomb, but the power of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. That great, that great question from the angel who stood there, Why seek ye the living among the dead? 
And we'll hear that here in a little bit. So what is the conclusion? Unwittingly, the conclusion is this, my friend. Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This individual who is historically verifiable. This man who walked the dusty streets of Galilee, just like you and I walk around. This Jesus, this is his human name. This is his Jewish name. He, in fact, is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. This one, this one, he has come. And he has, just in an amazing fashion, accomplished all that he has set out to do. Jesus' identity was mocked. Jesus' authority was vindicated. Jesus' body was um, vainly secured. And yet through it all, the king accomplished his purpose. And he makes satisfaction for your sin or and my sin on the cross. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.